It's Wednesday, September 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The CEOs of nine drug companies that are developing coronavirus vaccines have all signed on to a pledge to not seek regulatory approval until the shots have been shown to work in late-stage clinical trials. This is an attempt to calm fears that a vaccine may be approved too soon for political reasons. Many Americans are skeptical about taking a vaccine if it seems like the development and authorizations are rushed. Christopher Rowland, business of healthcare reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more. Next, there are eight critical battleground states where the 2020 election will be won or lost. Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin represent 127 electoral votes and a potential roadmap for victory for the candidate. President Trump must turn out rural voters, and Joe Biden needs a huge turnout in big cities. And in many states, suburban women hold the balance of power. Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico, joins us for the eight states to watch in the election. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The vaccine is a much bigger deal, obviously, than hydroxychloroquine or convalescent plasma. And if people don't have faith in the vaccine and the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and not enough people sign up to take it and accept that it's going to inoculate them from coronavirus, it won't stem the pandemic. Joining us now is Christopher Rowland, business of healthcare reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Christopher. Sure thing. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. I wanted to talk about what happened on Tuesday The nine drug makers said that their chief executive signed a pledge promising not to file for regulatory approval or authorization of their COVID-19 vaccines until the shots have been shown to be safe and effective through large-scale clinical testing. While something like this might not be very extraordinary on a normal basis, in the political climate and the way, you know, President Trump has been saying We're going to have something by November 1st, possibly by the end of the year and kind of speeding up the timeline so much. This kind of took on a new look only because they're really trying to kind of calm the fears that any type of vaccine will be rushed out to the market. The stakes couldn't be higher, obviously. And what we've seen, unfortunately, from this administration since the pandemic began is a number of overhyped and rushed through decisions through the FDA and through other political statements that have had the effect of kind of undermining the public's faith in exactly what the FDA is going to approve. The biggest example is the hydroxychloroquine debacle, which the FDA gave a emergency youth authorization to it, you know, at the behest of Trump and the White House, really uh, with very little to zero hard evidence that it would have any effect as a treatment for coronavirus, for COVID-19. And when some more hard studies were done for hydroxychloroquine by June, it became apparent that the drug had no benefit and, in fact, posed dangers of dangerous heart arrhythmias. The FDA had to rescind its EUA, which was a big black eye for the agency and kind of set the tone for the relationship between the White House and the FDA. And so you've seen Trump expressing frequent displeasure with the pace of FDA deliberations. And then what you've also seen was just recently, two weeks ago, Trump totally overhyping the EUA for convalescent plasma for treatment of coronavirus. And then his own FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, 
completely botching the rollout of the statistics and totally exaggerating what the effect of convalescent plasma is, for, uh, what the benefit is. It's actually of somewhat potentially some use, but there haven't been good randomized clinical trials that even show what it does. That's the backdrop to today's announcement by the drug companies where they are want to rush in and here. And so the vaccine is a much bigger deal, obviously, than hydroxychloroquine or convalescent plasma. And if people don't have faith in the vaccine and the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and not enough people sign up to take it and accept that it's going to inoculate them from coronavirus, it won't stem the pandemic. I mean, you need at least 50 to 70 percent of the people taking it to build herd immunity. It's going to be a couple year endeavor. And to rush something into the marketplace without having it appropriately tested is a really dangerous course. And so that's why you see that these drug companies, you know, it's sort of tacit or implicit criticism of Trump's path here. So they are, uh, you know, boldly saying what would normally not be bold at all. Don't worry, folks, we've got you. The headline for their statement said, Biopharma leaders unite to stand with science. <laughs> so yeah, right there, right. it sounds kind I of mean, a little knock. It's a pretty, yeah, that's a sort of an unsubtle dig, I think, at right. Trump, uh, the political environment. A lot of the top vaccine makers that are in contention right now that are in stage three trials and others have signed on to this. Uh, list a few of those, if you could, please. So the ones that are in the most advanced stages, there's three that are in phase three trials, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and Moderna. Each of these is not a traditional vaccine. You know, you have what's called deactivated virus, and then you use the deactivated virus in some sort of growth. You grow it in like egg whites or egg yolks, and it's a very painstaking and long process. With these genetic-based vaccines, you can rush them through the manufacturing and development process much more quickly. And so that's what they've done. So that's why those three manufacturers are ahead of the game, ahead of the pack and are manufacturing large volumes of vaccine in the event that they do prove safe and effective through massive stage three clinical trials. Stage three clinical trials for a vaccine take about 30,000 people. And that's an important distinction that these vaccines are made a different way because we don't have a vaccine that has been made in the way that they're going about it. So they really do need to do all the due diligence in these late stage clinical trials to make sure it's safe and effective. Well, that's a great point, really. Yeah. These are novel technologies. So they do show in early stages, they've shown clinical effectiveness and they've shown decent safety profiles. And so it's encouraging. But until you have the really large scale population scale clinical trials that where you can see that it's actually preventing people from getting infection out in a community, you really won't know. And how the other thing is you got to figure out how long it's going to work. That'll take even longer. It probably what you'll see is a an EUA before we know exactly whether or not the effect of the vaccine will last one year, two years, five years. So no one will really know that for quite some time as well. Christopher Rowland, business of healthcare reporter for the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. Fifty-six days from now, we're going to win North Carolina. We're going to win four more years in the White House. Joining us now is Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me. At Politico, you guys put together the eight swing states in 2020 where the election will be won or lost. 
these states right now, they're the critical battlegrounds. They are Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Minnesota, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. We know that these are the important states because we're seeing a lot of polling out of there. They're passing recent election history. The campaigns are also prioritizing a lot of staffing and ads running in those states. So tell us a little bit about why these are the top eight states for the election this time around. As always, this presidential election almost certainly will be decided by small numbers of voters in small numbers of places, in small numbers of states. And those are the eight states that matter the most, for better or for worse. As you alluded to, we can tell just based on the focus that both candidates, both campaigns are paying to these states and have paid for months, if not years, in the case, certainly, of the Trump campaign. One thing that is a similarity, an absolute reality of all these states is the suburban importance and the urban and rural divide. All of these states have cities that are almost entirely, certainly overwhelmingly blue, and then you get outside of those cities and it's overwhelmingly red. And where these states are going to be decided, generally speaking, are those slivers in between the suburbs, in some cases the exurbs, but often sort of those closer in suburbs, population well-educated, high degrees of not necessarily undecided voters, but unaffiliated. They're up for grabs. And so I think that is something that if there is a similarity, all these eight states, obviously very, very different when you compare Wisconsin to Florida, say, but that is a similarity across the board. These eight states will represent 127 electoral votes. So let's run through some of them real quick. And then I wanted to focus a little bit more on North Carolina, because that's an interesting state where there's a couple things happening there. But let's start with Arizona is one of the first swing states that's going to decide the 2020 election. Why is Arizona on this list? Because of Phoenix and the Phoenix suburbs, right? A frequent story, what we were just talking about, and it is a function of demographic change. The people who have moved to Phoenix from other places like California and also the uptick in the Latino population. Those two things are creating a different political climate in Arizona and a political climate that has turned that state traditionally a safe place for Republicans into a swing state and in some ways a more gettable swing state for Biden and for Democrats than some other places in the upper Midwest that traditionally have been considered much more blue rather than red. Florida is also on this list. Joe Biden has a lead over the president in a lot of polls there, but this one is still giving a lot of people uneasy feelings that the president is going to win it anyway. It is a giant state with almost six or seven different states within the state, and it adds up to an incredibly contested piece of political terrain, incredibly contested because of the split in political makeup and also because of just its value. It is the nation's biggest swing state, which is to say the nation's most important swing state. Little tiny changes in preferences, little tiny changes in population from the I-4 corridor through Orlando down to the Tampa Bay area across to Miami and Fort Lauderdale, it is always a total toss-up and will be the same way this November. Georgia is an interesting one because Democrats are going to need to do a lot of work there. They'd need a big blowout in the Atlanta suburbs there and a huge surge in black voter turnout for Joe Biden to win that state. 
frankly, I would be surprised if Georgia swings blue at this point. You just need such a large turnout in Atlanta, both from black and brown voters, but also that sort of whiter suburban vote to overwhelm what is still a rural Georgia elsewhere. It's just a tougher lift for Biden and for all Democrats. But perhaps in cycles to come, it is a gettable state for Democrats statewide and at the presidential level. President Trump won Michigan in 2016 by just over 10,000 votes out of some 4.7 million that were cast. So that one was very tight the last time around. As my colleague Tim Alberta writes in the piece in this package, which everybody should go and read the package as a whole and Tim's piece on Michigan, perhaps in particular, just because of this. It is such an interesting political terrain and everything that had to go right for Trump in 2016 in terms of lower minority turnout in the cities suburbs breaking his way and a rush of outer state voters breaking for Trump as well doesn't seem to be going in that direction, not in 2018 and not right now with polling and other statistical indications. So I'm inclined to trust him who knows more about Michigan politics than almost anybody on planet Earth. When he suggests in his piece that this is, while it was a key piece of the Trump victory in 2016, albeit such a slight victory, it is going to be a difficult place for him to repeat in some sense in 2020. Minnesota, President Trump has said that he is going to be competitive there. The polls have tightened a little bit, and both campaigns are pouring a lot of money into that state. It is a surprisingly up-for-grab state, right? Trump in 2016 almost won Minnesota, which came as a shock to a lot of people. But in some ways, at this point, it is on the table. It is a possibility for Trump. You think of Minnesota, you think blue, you think Walter Mondale. You do not think this is Trump territory. But one of the more interesting factoids in the story written by my colleague David Siders is that there are a quarter million white, non-college-educated males in Minnesota who are not registered. In other words, the stereotypical Trump voter who did not vote for Trump in 2016 and is out there. This is a piece of a path to victory for Trump, not just in Minnesota, but overall. If he can turn out the kinds of voters who voted for him in 2016, who surprised us in 2016 by showing up at the polls, if that sort of non-voter can become a voter in 2020, we might be surprised by Minnesota and surprised overall again in 2020. Pennsylvania and Wisconsin are also among these eight states. They're both a little similar in that President Trump unexpectedly won there by slim margins, and everybody's kind of looking for something to happen similar again. They say it might be a squeaker, another nail-biter again in November. And again, these two states embody this urban-rural divide. Pennsylvania is basically Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with everything else in between, right? And Wisconsin, Madison, and Milwaukee, and everything else. So the margins are so thin, and it's going to come down in both those states to non-white turnout in the urban areas. And what we see, and if we see any sort of uptick in a more Trump-preferring sort of voter or new voter in the places in between, in Pennsylvania's case, in between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and in Wisconsin, those areas, 
up toward the Canadian border and over toward the Mississippi River. A lot of those counties in Wisconsin broke for a Republican presidential candidate in 2016 in a way that they had not in a generation or more. And that will be interesting to see if he can, if the president can maintain those margins in those places in rural Wisconsin and rural Pennsylvania, and if Biden can turn out the vote in the urban areas more than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. I think that's the key in both those states. And finally, North Carolina, you guys call this the swingiest of the swing states. There's a lot of uh, suburban women that hold the power in this. And you always hear people, well, oh, everybody's already made up their mind. That's not necessarily the case in North Carolina. They're still making up their mind and they could you know, decide at the last minute. So yeah, North Carolina, I think, brings to a fine point what is true in so many of these swing states, and that is there is this identifiably important small segment of the electorate that will swing not only North Carolina, or we think will swing, almost certainly will swing, be decisive in North Carolina, and therefore beyond, right? What happens in North Carolina, I think, will be indicative of what happens in other places. And the the most important voters in North Carolina are white suburban women in close-in suburbs around Charlotte and Raleigh. I mean, these are the two biggest cities in North Carolina, and it is here where the most consequential changes have occurred in the electorate and in demographics, not just in the last four years, eight years, 12 years, but literally since 2018, literally in some cases in just the last year. And when we look at North Carolina, what happened in 2018 was places that the president won by sufficient margins in 2016 broke blue in 2018 in those midterms. And if that is predictive in any way of what we will see in 2020, the president is going to have a hard time winning the state again, partly because of what has happened just since 2018 in terms of new voter registrations and in terms of mail-in ballots, in large part because of the pandemic. More than 600,000 mail-in ballot requests have been made in North Carolina for November, and the overwhelming majority, more than 80 percent of them, have come from Democrats and from independents. And so if those registrations, more Democrats than Republicans, more Democrats and independents than Republicans in the last two years, in the last four years and two years, and if those mail-in ballots, those requested ballots turn into actual votes, that might be the swing here in North Carolina. And I think it's fair to say that if Donald Trump doesn't win North Carolina, he just will not win re-election. It is not quite as important as Florida because of just the difference in electoral votes, Florida having nearly twice as many. But Florida and North Carolina are sort of two canaries in the coal mine. If if Trump cannot win Florida and if Trump cannot win North Carolina, beyond even the numerical consideration, it just means that the country as a whole has moved away from him and he will not be reelected. Michael Cruz, senior staff writer at Politico, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. 
This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.